Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Now, the gospel is a message that God wants us to become linked to. There's a wonderful picture of this linking throughout the book of Romans, this linking of the gospel message to Paul, and it's wonderful when you trace it out. Because in Romans 1.1, Paul says, Paul, he identifies himself. He says, Paul, a servant of God, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Those are the words. He says that he was a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was called to be apostle. And then he says he was separated unto the gospel of God. So here, Paul, he's telling us that he has been separated unto the gospel. And that phrase, separated unto, is very much like a marriage. It's the basis for, you know, the traditional vows, which we don't hear very much anymore, but anyway, the traditional vows has this one part of it where each person says, I forsake all others, forsaking all others. You know, I promise to love, honor, cherish, protect, forsaking all others. See, that's the separating part. But marriage is a process. Boy, is it ever. (laughs) As my friend John would say, keep going, Tom, you're digging a hole now. Anyway, marriage is a process of growing closer to each other. And we can see this process in the life of Paul throughout the book of Romans as he gets closer and closer to the gospel message in the way that he refers to the gospel throughout the book of Romans. See, in Romans, we already saw that it was called the gospel. And then in Romans 1.9, it says, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. So here, very objectively, Paul refers to the gospel as the gospel of his son. Okay? First it was the gospel, now it's the gospel of his son. In Romans 1.15, Paul says, so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel. Again, Paul is referring to the gospel objectively as simply the gospel. And in Romans 1.16, that verse we're all familiar with, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ as the power of God unto salvation of the Jew first and also the Greek. So there he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So again, Paul is referring objectively to the gospel as the gospel of Christ. And then as we're getting toward the end of the book now, in Romans 15.16, He says that I should be the minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ of the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God. So again, it's objective. He's calling it the gospel of God. But he gets to the third to the last verse in the book of Romans, in Romans 16, 25. And he calls the gospel 
something he's never called it before and never does in the rest of his epistles that we see, but boy, can we see it's true. And here he says in Romans 16, 25, now to him that is of the power to establish you according to my gospel. He calls it my gospel. He's taken ownership. Now, the book of Romans is like Paul's life confession where he's going deeper and deeper and deeper into Christ. And the time finally reaches when he gets to the end of Romans and he's not calling the gospel the gospel as he did in Romans 1.15, the gospel of his dear son as he did in Romans 1.9, the gospel of Christ as he did in Romans 1.16, the gospel of God as he did in Romans 15.16. But now he says, this is my gospel. He's married to it. He's linked himself to the message and he's fully married now to the gospel message. And that's God's goal for us. That's what he wants for each one of us, to come to the place where the gospel is my gospel, our gospel, your gospel. Because, you know, when we go to the lost and we bring the gospel, you know, the lost really have one question. How much is this gospel really a part of you? How much are you doing this because you have to do it? That's their question. In other words, the lost look at us when we bring the gospel and they say, are you just a talking catechism? Is that what you are? Or is this really you? I remember one time my son David was giving a, a tour to a former employee who had left and gone off to medical school and so forth and came back and she said to David, well, Dave, I know what your father believes. Well, what do you believe? <laughs> so, are you just telling me what you learned in some evangelism class? Are you reading notes that you've written down on the palm of your hand? You know, step one, get them lost. Uh, for all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. Let's see. And step two, show them hell. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. Okay. What's next? Show them salvation. Rome, you know, 6.23. The gift of God is eternal. I don't know. So forth. Ask for the decision, you know. So because the lost have one question. How much is this message really linked to you? How much is this your gospel? How linked are you personally to this gospel message? That's what they want to know. Is it just external, the gospel, the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, or is it internal, my gospel? And people can tell if you've linked yourself, like Abraham did, drawing near to God, if you've linked yourself to the gospel message as my gospel, or is it just the gospel? They can tell when we tell them the gospel. They can tell. Are you acting like a professional? You're telling me the gospel because it's your profession? Or is it a confessional? Are you confessing from your heart, from your soul? And when we know that we are married to the gospel, people can tell. People can tell that. And what do you do if, when we don't feel like we're married to the gospel, but we want to be married to the gospel? We don't, what's a person to do? Well, the picture we see of Abraham drawing near to God, drawing closer. What if we look at ourselves and say, well, good for Abraham. You know, he could draw near to God. He, but I don't feel as close to God as Abraham did. What am I supposed to do? The answer is found. You might want to turn to it in Jeremiah 30, 21, because a very interesting phrases are in there, descriptions of what happened to a person in Jeremiah 30, 21. God here is, of course, speaking about Israel or complaining about Israel. God did a lot of complaining about Israel. Poor God. Anyway, Jeremiah 30, 21. He says, their nobles should be of themselves and their governor shall proceed from the midst of them. And then he said, I will cause him to draw near. So notice God says, I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach unto me. Then there's going to be a stop. And God asks this question, who's this? Who's this? 
that has engaged his heart to approach unto me, saith the Lord. God says, okay, now, I'm going to cause him to draw near. I'll cause him to approach unto me. But then it's like God stands back and says, well, who is this? Who is this who has engaged his heart? In other words, it works like this. When we engage our hearts to approach him, try. God says, I'll help you. I'll cause you to draw near. I'll cause you to approach to me. But it's a case of us making the decision to engage our hearts, to care, to engage our hearts. So in this verse, we can see in Jeremiah 30, 21, we can see God asking this question. Who's this? Who's this? That's engaged his heart to approach unto me. And we see here God's looking for that person. He's looking. Whoa, who's engaging their heart to approach me? And then God describes him, that person, as the one who did engage his heart to approach God. And God says, oh, look, look, there he is. There's the person who really wants to draw near. And then after his singling out that person, God says, I'll cause him to draw near. I'll cause him to approach unto me. So when we read the words that Abraham, not Abraham, that he drew near, it makes us say, I want to be that type of friend of God that Abraham was, that Abraham was able to draw near to God, not be afraid. Okay, what was the purpose? What did Abraham have in mind when he was drawing near to God back in Genesis 18? He wasn't drawing near to God to ask for himself. Abraham was drawing near to God in order to intercede, to come in between. And that makes God happy when we pray for others. God knows all about our troubles. And if we only come to God with our own needs, that's not so good. And the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 6, 31 through 33, therefore take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, they're chump change to God. He says, they shall be added to you. So what's the kingdom of God? What's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God are the people, people, kingdom, people. That's why Abraham was praying for others. The others are going to make up the kingdom of God. And so God's looking for people like Abraham. And he says that in Isaiah 59, 16, when God it says, he saw there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. It's a serious thing when God looks for someone and he doesn't find somebody and God's scratching his head saying, I can't understand it. I wonder why there's no intercessor. Then Abraham goes on in verse 25, and he's this phrase he uses twice in this verse, in verse 25, where he says, that be far from thee to do after this manner to slay the righteous with the wicked, the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee shall not the judge of all the earth do right. So from what we can see, Abraham is thinking about what is far from God, or in other words, what God will never do. And he argues, slay the righteous with the wicked, cast those who've been embroidered with the righteousness of God into hell, that's far from God. No, that's not going to happen. So on one hand, what we see here is that it's far from God to cast the justified into hell. But on the other hand, there's something else that's far from God, and that's found in Exodus 34, 7, a familiar verse where it says, he keeps mercy for thousands, he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means just clear the guilty. He visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, children's children, third, fourth generation. So although on one hand, God keeps mercy and forgiveness, and from he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, he's not just going to just by no means clear the guilty. He will not just overlook or forget about it, the iniquity, transgression, and the sin. 
See, on the surface, this, it looks contradictory because you say, how can God on the one hand be merciful and forgiving, and on the other hand, he's by no means going to clear or, as the Hebrew says, cleanse the guilty? And the answer to the question is found in one word, and it's the word in uh, Exodus 12 where it says, speaking about the Passover, it says, thus shall you eat of it, and with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover, referring to the lamb. That's a description of the lamb that was killed on the night of Passover, which is described in the verses before in Exodus 12, 6 or 7. You shall keep it, referring to the land, up until the 14th day of the same month. The whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it in the evening. They shall take of the blood, strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorposts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. That was a lamb. Each family had their own lamb. That was a lamb that was chosen. That was a lamb that was kept. That was a lamb that was carefully observed to be without blemish, confirmed. And that was a lamb that was killed. That was a lamb whose blood was precious. That was a lamb whose blood was collected. That was a lamb whose blood was applied or used to strike onto the two side posts and the upper beam over the door of the house. Most of all, that was a lamb that was trusted because everyone in the house was trusting in that lamb, that family lamb. And no one in the house wanted to see the death of the firstborn. Everyone was trusting solely in that lamb for safety. The lamb was chosen, kept, observed, killed. The blood was precious, was applied to the door, and then the lamb was trusted to save from death. That was the family's Passover. That's family's Passover lamb. But the lamb is called, in Exodus 12, 11, it is the Lord's Passover. See, by following God's instructions, the family made the Lord's Passover lamb their family Passover lamb. And when the family obeyed or followed God and obeyed God, then God's or the Lord's Passover lamb became their family Passover lamb. And when we obey God and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, when we obey God who presented to us the Lord Jesus Christ in John 1.29 as behold the Lamb of God, the Lord's Passover, then when we obey what we are commanded to do in Isaiah 53.10, thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. That's a command. And when we make the soul of the Lord Jesus Christ our offering for sin by receiving him as our Savior, then the Lord's Passover becomes our Passover, as it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. The word Passover or Pesach has got the key to this understanding of how we can understand how on one hand God can forgive and be merciful, and on the other hand, he will no way, no way just cleanse or clear the guilty. Because the word Passover or Pesach means to skip. Actually, it means to skip like a lamb. And it means to skip over. It's the word that Elijah used when he was challenging the Jewish people at Mount Carmel for not following the Lord as God, or just make up your mind, or Baal as God. And so Elijah told them they were skipping over two positions. He called them opinions. When he said in uh, 1 Kings 18.21, and Elijah came unto all the people and said, how long halt ye, how long Pesach, Pesach, 
How long passach ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people answer him, not a word. So Passover means to skip over, to exempt. So to have the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior is to have the Lord's skipping over. It's to have the Lord's Passover. It's to have the Lord's exemption. That's another way you can say that I'm saved. I have God's exemption. (laughs) And so it's to be spared as Abraham was praying for Sodom to spare the place. And we can see in verse 26 that when God responded to Abraham, he uses the same word when he said, and the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous, then I will spare all the place for their sake. So God, in verse 26, answers Abraham's prayer, gives him the request, and this greatly encourages Abraham, and Abraham hears God answer him, and, he, and so he, Abraham knows, I'm speaking on a friend-to-friend basis. We're buddies in a respectful way. And he knows he's speaking as a son to his heavenly father. And his heavenly father hasn't pushed him back. And with that knowledge, he makes the next statement in verse 27. Abraham says, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. So he says, Behold now to God. In other words, he says, God, look at this. This is really something special. Behold now. He's calling attention to a full assurance and a confidence Behold now, it's Hebrews 10, 23. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That's the behold now, true heart, full assurance of faith. Then he says, I've taken upon me to speak. So what was Abraham calling attention to? I'm gonna speak. In other words, he's saying, I really wanna speak to God. He's saying, I'm happy to speak to God. He's saying, I'm so amazed to be permitted to speak to God. And then he makes a statement about himself that really shows how undeserving he is to speak to God when he says, I am but dust and ashes. So he knows he doesn't deserve to speak with God, and he calls himself first dust. Now, Abraham calls himself dust. He's thinking about how dust has been used in Genesis so far. In Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. Genesis 3-19, it was a judgment. It says, for dust thou art, unto dust shalt thou return. So he's referring to dust. He's referring to his origin. Abraham is referring to his origin. Nothing, just dust of the ground. God told the serpent, you're going to eat dust. Genesis 3, 14, all the days of your life. The Hebrew word for dust is also the word to describe trash or rubbish. In Nehemiah 4, 10, it says there was much rubbish. That's the word, dust. And so that we were not able to build the wall. They had to clean all the trash out. So Abraham is calling himself trash. And by referring to dust, he's saying that his origin was from nothing. And then he calls himself ashes. And this is the first time that this word is used in the Bible, ashes, and it points to death. In Numbers 19, 9 and 10, it speaks about the heifer that was killed and burned. And then it said those ashes, that's the word, was carried out of the camp so that Israel can go and look at them. Ashes are used in throughout the scripture for those who wanted to show God, they were really sorry for what they did, so they put ashes on themselves. They were worthy of death. And so dust speaks of Abraham's beginning, nothingness, and Abraham speaks of his end to nothingness, also of ashes. And so he puts his end in his beginning, and he calls himself but dust and ashes. He's not the only person who used that term, I am but dust and ashes. Job did. Job did in Job 30, 19, where it says, he hath cast me into the slime, mire. It's like slime, mire. And I am become like dust and ashes, Job 42, 6. Wherefore, I abhor myself, Job says, and repent in dust and ashes. 
So if Abraham sees himself to be only dust and ashes, why would he take upon himself to speak to the Lord? How could dust and ashes expect to be heard by God? Because he knows. Abraham knows a secret that God wants to hear from dust and ashes, us. And he knows the secret, and David knew the secret, and David used a word, and that's the word in Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined, that's the word, his ear unto me. He inclined unto me, and he heard my cry. Psalm 116, verse 2, because he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore I call upon him as long as I live. That's the Hebrew word natah. It's translated inclined. It's also translated stretched out. It's described when God says he stretched out the heavens like a curtain. That's the word natah. When uh, Moses, all the people are about to be killed, and God says, stretch out your hand over the Red Sea and departed. That's the word that's used. And it's also bowed down, is it's how it's translated in Psalm 31 too. Bow down thine ear to me. So Abraham, David, they know this secret that God is happy to stretch himself toward dust and ashes. He's happy to bow down himself. And so he does it. And he describes this as but dust and ashes. Okay, now, then the rest of the chapter goes on and it speaks about the peradventure. There's the same pattern. You know, Abraham's very persistent. You really got to hand it to Abraham. He really doesn't quit. And he just goes on and on with peradventure, and God says, I will not. Peradventure, verse 24, 50, I will not, verse 26, for 50. Peradventure, lack 5, 45, verse 28, God says, I won't destroy 45, verse 28. Verse 29, peradventure 40, verse 29, I want to destroy 30, 30, peradventure 30, God says 30, I won't destroy 31, peradventure 20, I won't destroy it for 21. 32, last time, Lord, last time, peradventure 10, I won't destroy it for 10. So here in verse 32, Abraham said it was going to be the last request that he made, and God took him up on that. Maybe God was getting tired, I don't know. But (laughs) why did Abraham stop at 10? Because Abraham knew Lot has five daughters. Three are married, two are not married. And so he's made a calculation in his mind. Let's see, now, Lot, his wife, two unmarried daughters, three married daughters, three sons-in-law. I got 10. So he says, he's saying to himself, Lot, all the time we spent together, did you see me, Lot, reaching out to those in my household? Did you see me reaching out, trying to get them to get God's embroidered righteousness, the chashav righteousness? I hope, Lot, that you've not neglected your family I hope that you've done what you saw me do, and you've made it your business to make sure that all those ten got God's righteousness embroidered onto them. I hope you did your job, Lot. Then the chapter closes in verse 33, and it says, the Lord went his way as soon as he left communing with Abraham. That's a beautiful picture. That's a wonderful time of intimacy between God and Abraham called communing. And Abraham determined when it was going to end in verse 32. He said, I'll speak this once. And Abraham did, and Abraham was happy. He went his way. God was happy. His went his way. Both were happy with the outcome. Abraham hoped for the salvation of the city. It didn't happen. But Abraham did what he could, and he was happy there. He fought hard in prayer, Abraham did. He had succeeded in getting the request that he asked, but the city wasn't spared, and Sodom was destroyed. But in verse 33, we see an Abraham who's happy, and he goes to his place. Abraham didn't. He was happy even though the city was destroyed. He had fought for the city to be spared. If there were 10, he got his request. Only problem was not there wasn't 10. But Abraham did what he could, and he went home content. And if you and I follow Abraham's walk, we'll fight to save the lost. 
will pray with persistence as Abraham did for the lost, will draw near to God for the lost as Abraham did. And you and I, in most cases, will be like Abraham and will see the lost not saved and cast into hell. But if we followed Abraham, we'll go home content knowing that we did what we could. We brought the gospel to them in every creative way we could think of. We prayed for them, and like Abraham, we'll have this assurance that we did what we could, and we'll hear God say to us, good job, soldier, at ease. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the word this morning. Help us, Lord, to be changed by it. Help us to hear your word in it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Now, Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. Or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Thanks for listening to Friendship with God with Tom Cantor.